Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, we're going to go over something I think is pretty exciting. It's intriguing. It's an ongoing story, and it's controversial. These are pieces you don't get in every story. It's not dry research to pile on to, oh, why keto works or it doesn't. And by the way, when I talk about keto, and it's become more and more of a general reference, right? Because you find if people, like we've been on it, what basically following a ketogenic lifestyle, way of eating, whatever you want to refer to it, for the last seven years since 2013. So what I want to say on the use of the word keto, keto basically uh, well, formally means that can you measure ketones in your bloodstream, not so much in your urine because that's a temporary measurement and then that stops after about a month of your first getting into ketogenic. But your ketone levels drop down. I mean, that's well known through a number of studies, but anybody who's followed themselves feel disappointed when they're feeling great and life is going well, but you know, they become, I won't say obsessed, but they become very good at tracking themselves, which has always been one of my recommendations, tracking their ketones or glucose numbers and so on. They may even wear the Freestyle Libra. That's certainly what uh, people do in our group, our coaching group, but they'll find, gosh, I'm disappointed. You know, I initially had ketones three to four to five, even at times up in seven. Well, your body, one, becomes much more efficient at producing it and two, much more efficient at consuming them. So you're going to see a rather low level. That's my explanation and other people's explanations as well. It really can't be verified uh, other than this is the pattern that many people follow. And you still do have your fat adapted. You don't necessarily have to have the high fat aspect. If you have no fat on yourself, then you'll need to consume fat long term. But how it works for most people, the, the heart of it is really about carbs, dropping the carbs down to lower and lower and lower. Uh, the classic ketogenic diet is also referred to as very low carbohydrate diet, 25 grams or less. We even have fewer than that. So, and I think when you and as I've talked about it before, ancestrally, there's a lot of references to why this works. I don't call what I'm doing eating carnivore. I've recently in the last month had probably about four salads. It's okay. It didn't change much, but I'm pretty much a meat eater. We meat eater with, with the fats, of course. Not always. Like I, I cut away some of the fats of the meat that I eat, so I'm not automatically 
I'm, I'm not a ribeye lover anymore. We've gone on to other cuts of meat that we think are fine. We don't add butter to everything anymore. I haven't done that for a couple of years. I do like a little, we make our mayo, mayonnaise, it's, I hope you all know by now, and I think you should too. I add that kind of for an afternoon treat with an egg yolk, you know, a slightly cooked egg yolk, little mayo. I might put it on, we've gotten into curing meats. I might put it on one of those little thinly sliced, I can, I don't know the names of these meats that Judy has cured and made, but they're basically like salamis shaved off. And so you roll it up in that and you add a little mayo and put in the egg yolk and you pop it in your mouth or it's a mouth or two, a mouthful or two. And it's wonderful. It's so that's my snack, you know, and I'm not fighting. It's like, I'm not saying, well, I got to stay within certain guidelines and oh my gosh, how much fat was there with, it was pretty much carb free, but there are some carbs in fat, not much. I mean, in uh, meat, really not at all. But anyway, I want to move on to today is going to be about dairy. And so we've talked about dairy before, so it's not so much repeating it, but it's exciting because I like to come into people's work and people who have changed how we look at things. So let me give you, you know, the ketogenic diet. Let me give you a few examples. The ketogenic diet by William Wilder, he was the one that conceived it back in 21. Uh, Dr. Pennington, who worked with him, is the one who formulated it, and then it came out in a research paper in 1928. So that took about seven years to really get it all down, and that was about the 25 grams of carbs, the one gram of protein per kilogram of uh, body weight, and then the rest, quote-unquote, fat. And for those who are very epileptic, they really had to focus on making sure that fat was there. So within that core of the carbs, as I said, and the proteins, it's differentiated into four different types of diet depending on how much fat you add to that, right? So if you really are severely diabetic, especially pediatrics, um, you start high fat and you lock yourself into there. And it is a mechanistic way to do it, but it really turns it removes people from being diabetic for the rest of their life. It does not work as well for adults who are diabetic. I mean, it works while they're doing the diet to, to decrease or stop seizures. But once they come off it, they still have their seizures. Whereas a pediatric, a child who's done this for about three years, i.e. Charlie of the Charlie Foundation, he has a normal life now. That's interesting. But anyway, so it's it's the working and the thinking of... William Wilder, Pennington, and then the trajectory of where the ketogenic diet has gone through the 30s, through the 40s, through the 50s, the 60s, and as you know, the stories I've covered before, all the way up into the 90s, to the rediscovering of it in the 90s. Okay, so through Charlie Abrams and the Charlie Foundation. Uh, so uh, Director Abrams and his son is Charlie. So dairy. Dairy is controversial within all the keto gurus, and I can name them off. It'd be kind of insulting for me to pick them off. You can see in their YouTube presentations, they go, gosh, I do dairy. Nothing's wrong with dairy. When people go on keto, you know, it seems like they had a problem with dairy, but after on ketogenic diet for a while, meaning cutting their carbs, that they seem to be able to tolerate dairy. Well, that's kind of a very ignorant, that's true, by the way, but that doesn't mean that dairy doesn't have problems in it. And so just like when I used to talk about Dr. Kraft and Dr. Kraft is the one who would do 
take people's glucose, the glucose tolerance test, which is at the fasting and then at 30 minutes and then the hour and then at two hours. And he would carry it out to four hours measuring both glucose and together with insulin. And he'd find that, gosh, most people in North America are actually pre-diabetic, if not undiagnosed diabetics. That was a real breakthrough. And so he put in his quadrants of where these results fall. And he had over 14,000 patients that did this. And so he had a lot of data, but he took it upon himself to do that. It was his thinking, his curiosity about saying, hmm, I wonder how that will look fasting insulin if we take insulin through it. That was never done before. And it still should be done, and it's still not done a lot. I, the reason I think it's not done a lot, because people don't want to have conflicting information to their instructions per the American Diabetic Association. But anyways, the point was, his example of somebody whose work has really changed how we see hyperinsulinemia, glucose, and really resetting the stage in terms of obesity as well. You know, where is hyperinsulinemia? obesity. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be having the kind of conversations we're having today in the keto world and the low-carb world. All right. I'd like to bring in another person that you haven't heard that much about. You've heard a little bit about one of the things that he discovered and did research. It's still controversial because it hasn't been accepted yet by a lot. So that is the difference between A1 casein or A1 cows and A2 cows. Here's the story of how he got involved with understanding not all milk is the same, not all cow milk is the same, and what the heck and why has it been causing these problems. So the reason his name, Sir Robert Elliot, he's a New Zealander. He was a pediatric, and he just died. So I'm saying past tense, he just died uh, in the last, in December of 2020. Dr. Elliot, Auckland pediatrician, Dr. Elliot one of his areas of work on was cystic fibrosis. That's for kids. That's where their lungs fill up with a lot of mucus and eventually they, they die at a fairly young age. He was very much involved with that. He was the first to do a heel test for children for cystic fibrosis so you could intervene sooner than possible. That was his thinking from New Zealand in Auckland, from his work. But one of the other things he noticed is that Samoans, so we're in New Zealand and so there's a lot of Pacific Islanders, the the Maori, I think, uh, M-A-O-R-I, the Pacific Islanders that are native to New Zealand and other islands are, are a part of the population, of course, and they have a high rate of diabetes in New, New Zealand. But what he noticed specifically of other Pacific Islanders were Samoans. So in Samoans, he noticed when Samoans came to New Zealand, they soon developed diabetes, whereas Samoans who stayed on Samoa didn't have diabetes. So the first question is, what's the difference between A and B? He realized that one of the things that in New Zealand that they had was cow milk. He noticed that, gee, is there something in milk that we have? Because apparently they also did have some milk in Samoa, but it was a different kind of milk. We'll get into this. But he was wondering about some things in the milk, something because New Zealand was very much like the United States and probably like Canada, that it was very milk heavy for the last 70 years. You know, have milk for breakfast, have milk in your cereal and so on and so forth. Have milk, have your cheese, yada, yada, yada. He started working with other scientists about the idea of, you know, how is this milk different? That's a pretty big general question, right? Well, they brought it down to the casein. And 
he found that that type 1 diabetes is associated with dairy consumption. I'll use that in New Zealand, in the United States. But dairy consumption in East Africa, meaning Kenya, Tanzania, um, such as the Maasai tribes, that you see are all about dairy. They drink the milk, they have the cheese, and they're all about it, and they have no diabetes. So why is that? And it's interesting, that example, the Maasai, the Eastern African native tribes that have dairy but don't get diabetes, and they're hale and hearty and so on and so forth, was this sort of oppositional group of people, and he couldn't quite understand it. And that group, by the way, that reference is still used when you go to keto conferences. Well, you know, look it, they use dairy and they're fine. You know, and that's the end of the conversation. Part of me wants to say, and you're a stupid son of a gun and you shouldn't be saying that. Why don't you be a little more scientific as you're pretending that you are uh, as you give this talk? Well, the difference is, and it took a while to to come up with this. This is Dr. Elliot in finding that type 1 diabetes is extremely rare in Samoa and that children who are living in Samoa are relatively common and Samoan children are living in New Zealand. So that's where it started. So there's ethnicity factor there, but there's also something else. And nothing's ever one factor, but you can find predominant factors and they are clearly very important to tease out. So he went further with that and I'm trying to read some of my notes as I go through it because it's not a simple story. He was comparing it to the African milk and saying there's got to be more to it than this story. So it goes that they find you have two different kinds of casein in milk. You have casein in all milk. All mammalian milk milk has casein. However, there are cows that produce one kind of casein and another kind of casein. So they're calling that A1 and A2. What is interesting is that, and there's new information here, so I'm just giving sort of the, the refresher course on this, is that the A1 cows, I'm going to call them now, the cows that produce A1 casein are newer. Supposedly that mutation came out about 7,000 years ago. And in looking on the evolutionary way of talking about this, we'll say, well, why did it happen 7,000 years ago? Well, supposedly all cows came out of Africa. What didn't come out of Africa, right? <laughs> Everything came out of Africa. So they're African cows. As they're spreading all as, as uh, you know, you had sheep, goat, and cows. This is the beginning of uh, agriculture and animal husbandry, etc. Well, as they brought their cows into different climates, the mutation was was supposedly beneficial to the cow in some way. I'm guessing, but anyway, the mutation came from cows that were now primarily of European stock, and um, that happened about seven thousand years ago. Okay, that's an interesting story. Whereas the cows that also came out of Africa, but went more towards the Middle East and India and so on and so forth, they kept the A2. So all that milk is A2. And by the way, in humans, the casein in human milk is A2. So it's all fine. And um, other mammals, it's primarily A2. So from there, what is new? So now he's breaking it down and they have to really do a lot of molecular biochemistry to really understand how this looks. And so what it is, is the A1 casein, instead of getting consumed by itself like casein and, and digested and broken down amino acids, apparently the casein of the A1 has a, and it's a very complicated structure. So think of branches. And so I think of a tree actually, that a piece breaks off 
I mean, it, it breaks off with A1, and it's this little piece of casein that comes from the mother casein, right? the mothership casein, that then connects with a thing called a mu-opioid fragment, beta caseomorphine 7, should you want to know the whole thing. So this little piece, or it's actually fairly a long piece, but it's casein's a pretty big, complicated thing. This piece breaks off, and it hits these mu-opioid receptors throughout the body. However, A2 casein doesn't have any of this. It stays together kind of as a (laughs) lump of clay and doesn't have this mu-opioid receptor problem. So why would you care about that? This thing that hits all these mu-opioid receptors make it very opioid-like, hence the name. And part of that is the natural function of casein to, I would say, create a little addiction. So those that are drinking it, like little little babies, whatever, little cows, little humans want to come back and have some more. And eventually that they get weaned off is the word from this sort of thing. But there's something else. You know, what is this tie to type 1 diabetes? So type 1 diabetes is the inability or the very low ability to produce insulin. So it's different than type 2 diabetes. It's type 1 diabetes. It's got to be something pretty profound and generally type 1 diabetes is, well, it happens at birth or happens earlier on, and that's just how it goes. That's as far as the thinking goes. No, it just happens. Just happens. You're born that way. Somehow we don't know. And so here we're saying, here we're showing as this gets amped up even more. And by the way, this research by Dr. Elliott started in 1993 is when he first called the Dairy Research Institute and said, you know, was there any difference in the protein chemistry of African milk versus non-African milk. And this is where this all began um, in identifying what I just told you. So what happened in 2017, let's see if I get this. That was, so the uh, 2017, they realized that those are type one, this is, so insulin is made in the pancreas. Okay. So the islets cells of the pancreas called the, the beta cells, the islet cells in the pancreas are getting destroyed. So why is it they're getting destroyed and causing a type 1 diabetes? Well, apparently the islets that were destroyed contain the mu-opioid receptors. And it hits these receptors, turns this, you know, this connection of this piece of casein that I'm telling you about, hits those receptors in the pancreas, specifically about the insulin, and it begins to destroy them. But it's the presence of the mu-opioid receptors in the pancreas that helps explain why the this particular beta casa morphine 7 released from the from the we'll call it the mothership casein is inevitably attracted to the islet cells of the pancreas where it attaches to them so it attaches to them and makes them non-functional that's part of the story this is fairly recent so this just that just goes back to 2017 okay, what happens from there when the human immune system attacks the beta case of morphine 7, there is a risk that will also be accidentally kills the insulin-producing cells themselves, which the beta case of morphine is attached to. So now we're into autoimmune. We find that those who are type 1 diabetics have an autoimmune disorder. I won't call it a disease. And that autoimmune disorder is the killing of these beta cells in the pancreas. So how did they get there? First, this casein came in. And so your immune system, right from birth, we're going to say 
a functioning immune system can differentiate between self, this is my skin, this is my lining of my colon, this is my brain tissue, this is, so it's me, 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 and we don't attack me, 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 right? We don't attack self. But we do want an immune system that recognizes external invaders, be it virus, uh, viral, or bacterial, or um, that's where allergic sensitivity comes into too. They recognize things that came through leaky guts that are not them, it's not self, so they try to get an antibody to that and make it inactive and send it out with the stools or the urine. So the immune system is recognizing this beta casomorphine 7 as foreign. They go, ah, foreign. You know, so think of troops being coached on, see this poster, guys, or women or whatever, see this poster, is bad guy, beta casomorphine 7. Here's what it looks like. You see this, you kill it. Well, the problem is it's now attached to the pancreas beta cells. It not only kills or tries to inactivate, gets attracted to the beta casomorphine 7, but it ends up killing the pancreas uh, beta, beta cells. So now we have a causative, this is new, the causative feature of A1 dairy, right? So now we're getting pretty specialized. A1 dairy that causes type 1 diabetes. So this is so new of the work. And if you can imagine the risk that Dr. Elliot, he became knighted, by the way, by the queen, so he's Sir Robert Elliot, is that in his, since 1993, so that's 27 years, uh, he died at 86. And so he was in his late 50s when he became curious about this. And can you imagine being in the dairy industry, especially in New Zealand? New, New Zealand's a big dairy exporter, especially to China that they start hearing something's wrong with the milk. You know, that was how it first came across. Something's wrong with milk. We shouldn't be having milk. So this word gets out, up, there's a problem with milk. Milk is bad. Well, anybody in naturopathic medicine knew you just take people off milk and a lot of things get better way before we knew anything about A1 or A2 casein. He became pilloried. You know, he became, they were out after him. And in some of his own words, that some companies totally destroyed his career. You know, they, they laughed at him, tried to undermine his research, and uh, it wasn't just black or white. Hey, this is science, so they were, they were after him. It was only in late of July 2020 that this really started coming together, that it was the, the mu opioid receptors of the, uh, the alpha cells and the pancreas that were being destroyed because of the A1. This does not happen with A2. And this is why you can have whole different cows. And so now they know what cows are A1 and what cows are A2. And the problem is, and what you can see, this is really interesting, is most of the world's leading dairy companies are now working quietly, quietly, on their own A2 milk projects, meaning they're getting herds to be homozygous, right? The problem is you you can crossbreed cows to cows, and you're going to get crossbreed an A, A1 with an A2, and what you'll probably get is a little bit of both. And so until you get a homozygous, homozygous cow, cattle, cow uh, milking cows, you're still going to be prone to A1. It takes a good generation. I've actually called a number of farms in the United States. They said it takes about 25 years to wean out, to have them die out your milk producing cows that are A1. So you can be homozygous A2. So the first country that really took this seriously was Australia. And they came with their, to having A2 milk it's now a uh, an actual commercial name. I'll get to that in a second, but so we'll just call it A2 milk, A2 cows, better. 
And so that was available there and it made a big difference. However, not all A2 milk from that company is A2 actual milk. They have heterozygous cows. And so it really takes a long time. So anyway, back to there's a lot of companies working on this A2 milk projects with the alternative A1 having now been linked to so many health conditions. Companies like Nestle's, Dan Danon's, Dion, which is a French, uh, Mead Johnson, plus the biggest Chinese companies have all have their own A2 projects and nutritional products. And so they're not doing it because there's a market for them. Well, I mean, clearly there's a market, but those that Chinese have always had a problem with dairy. And this is probably the reason why the Chinese have always had a problem with dairy. At the same time, like the rest of the world, they love dairy, love the cheese, uh, you know, all the things. So that's fascinating. It's really becoming nailed down. So the new piece was that A1 is a instigator, if you will, a causative factor in creating autoimmune pancreatic alpha cell shutdown, death, if you will. Big deal. That's a real big deal. And so therefore, type 1 diabetes in pediatrics, and certainly as they get older, they keep their type 1 diabetes because their cells died out. So how is that? That's pretty interesting, eh? Some people hear me wrong and say, oh, you just hate dairy. We do dairy and I don't have access to A2, authentic A2 milk. I know there's A2 milk. The company is now being sold in Whole Foods and other places and I've tried it. And um, I don't know if there was much of a difference. You know, I'm not a milk drinker. It's usually the derivative products. I, I would like the cheeses. So when A2 cheese comes out, homozygous, that would be interesting. When A2, but it's really starting. So the next 25 years, you're going to see this happening throughout Europe and so on and so forth. So you could say that the the cows and the cheese and the milk that's made from these A2 cows are fine. So it's not enough of a commercial differentiator for you to go into a store and say, I want A2, I want A1. Goats and sheep and humans are all A2. So I remember from my naturopathic practice and and, and working with people, you know, to tell them, hey, we're, we're going to be not doing dairy for a while. And they would not cry, but they go, that's too tough. Were you a crazy man? What I would do is initially cut them some slack. Or after their two months of giving up, I'd say, you know, it's not, you have to, and, and everything got better. They gave up their dairy and everything got better. And they go, this is great, but it sucks. I love dairy. And now I'm whatever. Could more than just allergies. Could be gut issues, could be asthma, could be you know, things improved considerably. So they really had this data that they had to look at. So then I say, I'm going to cut you some slack and here's what we're going to do. You and I would refer them to a gourmet cheese store and I would tell them to look for cheese and goat's cheese. And therefore they would, and I didn't know about A1 versus two, but I, I knew that that was not a problem. So that's what they do. But now overlaying that with what I know, it's really was an A1 versus an A2 recommendation that I was or an A2 versus A1 recommendation I was making for these uh, former patients. Okay, so what does this, the A1, A2 situation does have to do with a number of health issues and you look up uh, asthma as a big deal. So most of this is pediatric and then it goes on for a lifetime, but it's mostly how do some children just react to it? So it's asthma, certainly a lot of digestive issues. We're talking about severe cramping, it leads into colitis, leads into Crohn's disease. So once you have an autoimmune and you don't do what you can to keep it, it's like a little fire. 
once, because an autoimmune, remember it's a confusion that your immune system goes, I'm a little confused. Was, was that a foreign invader or is that self? And so the confusion happened with the pancreas. It recognized that kind of casein hooked into the mu receptor as foreign, and it was going to block it, do what it could, attack it, get rid of it. But once it connected, it ended up being, well, you just attacked that receptor as well and made it a non-functioning endocrine gland in terms of insulin. Interesting stuff, eh? You kind of wonder, by the way, does any of that carry over to glucagon because glucagon is produced in your pancreas. It's also produced in your stomach as well. Was there a cross-reactivity with uh, glucagon in terms of autoimmune? I hope you're getting the point, trying to make it real black or white. We're just looking at the kind of casein and what we know so far. And what I would reference you, if you're interested in this, there's a, and where I get most of my information from, it's a blog, and it's from Keith Woodford. And the first time I heard of him was the small book that he wrote called The Devil in the Milk. And it was the K1 casein versus A2 casein conundrum. And this is back 2007. So he didn't know everything. It was just, and you think about it, Bob Elliott, Dr. Elliott discovered it or really became curious about it in 93. It was only 14 years of exploring this and trying to find out. So it was in the early days. He references Dr. Elliott, of course, a lot. And, and other scientists have then become involved with it. And there was a lot of pushback. There's a lot of pushback and it goes on. And so, but anyways, uh, if you look at Keith Woodward, he has a great blog. You can go to his topics, you know, and so if you look at A1 versus A2 topics, you can see all the blogs he's written on, uh, very insightful. He's an agronomist and uh, agriculture expert from New Zealand that travels the world and very oriented towards the Chinese market. So it's all fascinating, but you can look at it just for that. That's my source. And that's where I first learned about it was in 2007 saying, wow, this is really interesting because it kind of correlates to what I'm seeing. Okay. I'm going to go a little further with dairy. And so I like to differentiate what we know versus what we do not know. And so I hope you don't put me into, oh, he's against dairy. Oh, he's for dairy or whatever the thing is. I am for so far, I would love, if it was possible, just to have A2 milk dairy products. I would be interested in having some of that right now. I do not have much dairy because we don't have those those things in front of us. And dairy does cause a problem for me, but I'll have it very special occasions. Judy will make a cheesecake, you know, once a year. Then you parse out those slices and it's great. She makes alternative dairy ice cream, so that's not a problem. So we use it sparingly. And that's my answer to this of living my life. But other, you you have to, when you talk about dairy, you also have to think of the process of homogenization and pasteurization. It does take out a lot of basic good nutrition of, it alters it. I'm not going to go that. That's probably a separate topic. And I've talked a little bit about that before, but clearly both of those have altered the, you know, it's not just dairy anymore. So when we talk about Maasai, they don't have pasteurized milk. They don't have homogenized milk. They have their milk from their cows that they use, and they haven't had, to my knowledge, high infection rates at all. Uh, Tularemia is a thing that we worry about in the United States and other bacterial infections with the dairy industry. So that's why the cattle are on boatloads of antibiotics, and that's why, and they're also given plenty of growth hormones to have them be uh, cow producers. Having said that, 
there's a movement in the United States to move uh, dairy cows, this is uh, in upstate New York and parts of Vermont, to move them away from the uh, antibiotics and the growth hormones and have them be as you know minimally used. You obviously, if somebody's sick, you use what you have to use. But have them be grass-fed as opposed to corn and soy-fed. We've talked about that when I talked about corn. So you now have a whole different movement within the dairy industry, which is actually losing a lot of people, becoming less popular for the dairy industry, but making it qualitatively better to win back some of the people that are no longer willing to have dairy. When we talk about, and I think it's a very inane, I think it's a very uneducated way to talk about dairy. It's like, well, you know, look at the people that eat dairy in India and Western and Eastern Africa. Well, they have different cows. They have a whole different situation. And I think if you're not willing to recognize that, I really suspect, you know, all the information you would be offering if this is the way you look at dairy. It's not black or white. And back to the Maasai, they don't have high amounts of antibiotics. They don't have high amounts of growth hormones. Nothing I think is added. And they are grazed cattle. So those are big qualitative differences in terms of their end product of the milk that they derive and all the things they do with that milk. So I hope that was coherent enough for you to get something out of it. I think it's a fascinating topic. And now I am going to switch to another aspect of dairy. And I'm going to pause and let me get that up because I'm not slamming dairy, hoping that you're going to be willing to be a little more educated on what is inherent in dairy. And now we're going to go to growth hormones in dairy and IGF specifically, since IGF is insulin-like growth factor, dash one, and it's very similar to insulin, hence the name. So now we're going to be talking about dairy still, but IGF one, insulin-like growth factor one. And so this actually comes from a study in 2009 that links together a number of things. And I will put a link to this study and also to uh, Dr. Woodruff's blog so you can look at that. The following topic, this is all preparatory. The IGF part is all preparatory for the following topic, which is going to be on uh, Lorenz syndrome, which is lack of IGF and what that may do to you for them, these people. But that's for next time. Here's what another really interesting story. It's not identified to one person in particular, but it's a growing trend of people recognizing that dairy was an issue for some people. So the first thing is that there it was noticed with acne. You know, so this guy interviewed over a thousand consecutive acne patients in his practice, and he drawn the same conclusion. This is, and then he went off to talk about others to others as well. I found out that. Uh, the dairy intake paralleled the acne severity. It dropped the dairy and the acne went away. You go, what was that about? We're going to get to what was that about in a second, but at least we have the correlation in that when you can turn something on and turn something off pretty quickly, or it's a predominant factor in being able to change that for better or for worse, then you look more deeply. So that's what this paper was. And so the paper was, is IGF and dairy consumption, acne, dairy, and cancer. That's the link for the next talk. What did they find is that over the past 35 years, it's been suspected that you know dairy is really hitting a few hormones and it is part of 
making certain things worse, acme being one. So what it comes down to, I'm going to give you the conclusion first, is that three hormone-sensitive glands, they are your sebaceous cysts, you know, your that's where you get your acne, breast, and prostate. There's the correspondence of breast cancer and prostate cancer with high dairy consumers. And all have been linked, you know, epidemiologically to dairy intake. So why did they think? What is the, this is now about a decade, 11 years ago, and, it's, and uh, you can follow up the degree you're interested in this for more studies, go to PubMed or Google Scholar, is that it goes like this. The insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1, is a general stimulant. It's a, it's, it's a growth factor. Like, like insulin, it's a growth factor. That's why bodybuilders inject themselves with insulin to get the muscles in addition to working out. Okay, so it's a generalized stimulant synergized by the steroid hormones already present in milk. So now you think about some of these other growth hormones that are given to it. So the IGF may be either absorbed from the milk or stimulated by its ingestion or both. When you have, think about uh, IGF in cows, it's identical to IGF in humans. So when you take in IGF, you eat it, you drink it, it gets into your bloodstream, and the first place it goes, the liver, it hit, it does two things, is that uh, IGF is supposed to do two things. It's going to stimulate gluconeogenesis, which is basically stimulating glucagon, and it's also going to produce more IGF. So it amps it up. So you've amplified the IGF. So it comes down to that you go, all right, now we have, things are going to grow. So why, why, why is there a breast cancer? Why is there acne? Why is there prostate cancer? What are the associations with that? There is a component in milk, 5-alpha-pregnolone. I'm not going to get into the, the, the specifics, but it, uh, it's present in milk and it's a direct precursor of dihydrotestosterone. So when we talk about androgens, there are, you know, these are hormones. So you know about testosterone, but testosterone is not the strongest androgen. Dihydrotestosterone is. And so by drinking, by having dairy products that now you know the IGF part, coupled with one of its, one of the other components in milk tends to stimulate a lot of testosterone not, sorry, I shouldn't say that. A lot of dihydrotestosterone, the stronger of the androgens in, in the androgen family. So the introduction of exogenous, and here's key, it's the introduction, it's the dairy before puberty. So the introduction of exogenous hormones, that's what you're doing. You're taking exogenous hormones and through dairy and growth factors into the tissues have not evolved and not they have not become sophisticated enough pre-puberty in a little girl, a little boy, they have not evolved the defense feedback inhibition. They can't turn off their the signaling. It's just more, more, more. And so they're thinking that the postulation here is that it's that's the dangerous time. They can't inhibit their corresponding endogenous sources is postulated as a direct stimulatory threat to these organ systems for either hyperplasia, in other words, just making things grow a lot, and or for neoplasia, which is cancer. So that's the, the big thing. And that idea about, because when you have uh, puberty is when you have a lot of growth hormones, right? That's when uh, little boys and girls start developing secondary growth characteristics. So they're now becoming into an adult over the subsequent years. That's growth spurts, hair into the arms, et cetera, et cetera, breast, and so on. 
that's a very vulnerable time. That's also a very vulnerable time in, in environmental exposures as well. That's known. So that's not a controversial aspect. So now we're saying in this same pattern we recognize in other areas that you enter into this, it is an environmental exposure at a very sensitive time. However, post that does not seem, after puberty does not seem to be the issue. So we, what we get out of that? We got that IGF from milk and other growth hormones in milk, whether they were added or not added, are all considered exogenous from the outside when you take them in, right? They're not yours. You've, you've got them from, from somebody else, from some other source. That's what this is. And it can go on to predispose you to various cancers, certainly acne, correlates with acne, especially pre-puberty. And if you have that sensitivity, you've already had that, it doesn't mean things will change post-puberty. Post-puberty, things generally get worse if you've already been exposed to that. So if somebody never had dairy and their life started having dairy and they're in their 40s or 50s, they might not get acne, might not have any increased risks in that regard because they didn't have the sensitivity established. So I'm just going to leave that piece there and I'm going to uh, post that. It's a lot more you can go and I think it's very fascinating, but I think it could be a little bit too many details here. So we have type 1 diabetes. We have cancer associated with dairy. We're talking about in the first part, A1 dairy. The second part was non-discretionary uh, in terms of A1 or A2. It just used dairy across. That would be interesting to then do this particular research and find out was there a greater effect with one or the other. So I hope that wasn't too confusing to you. This is trying to give you real information about dairy, why I don't do it. Uh, what I would consider doing if I had the A2, it'd be interesting to do that. Um, I'm post-puberty, as you can probably guess, so I'd have less worried about uh, that. But to be aware of it. Many of you have kids and saying, you know, maybe there's other sources. I know there's a lot of propaganda, and I see this in the keto world at all. One guy was a bariatric surgeon. He goes, I give it to my wife. I give it to my wife. I give dairy to my wife. She didn't die. It's like, and so that's the test? Uh, what an idiot. Absolutely, what an idiot. Uh, there was another person that uh, I know very well saying, you know, well, people who go on keto, they just have less of a reaction to it. We've heard that would be, and the reason they would have less of a reaction to it, because keto is actually an anti-inflammatory. So whatever reaction they do have, it's going to be scaled down by a quarter, or a half, a third, or whatever. And so that's the reason for that. It doesn't nullify the effect that dairy is having. I hope you found that interesting. I find these things very interesting. I find that, that the information is actionable, and it gives a reason why thing people have improved on dairy. So till next time, take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they're overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.